this morning uh, we're going to be in a, in a short text. It's uh, chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. We're going to do a Bible study. And uh, it's, a, it's a, I don't know, it's a hard word. It's another hard word. Jesus the prophet, friends, it's a, it's a hard word. And I, this morning I was actually, uh, you know, I was just thinking about today and I was praying about today. And there was a piece of me, I just wanted to be honest with you before we study the text and do our thing. The piece of me that was kind of like, can't we have a good word? <laughs> can't we have a pastoral, friendly, nice word? And uh, you know what? I think, you know, it, there, are, there have been some weeks that have been challenging and at the same time encouraging. And, you know, the reality is uh, we will we'll have an encouraging word when Luke has an encouraging word for us. <laughs> we just go, we walk through Scripture, and sometimes there, there are these large portions, especially in the Gospel of Luke, actually, especially in the Gospel of Luke, where everything's challenging. And it's actually important for us to engage in that challenge for a season, to be cut up in a way by the text. And um, I do think there's actually a little bit of a pastoral word in here, but I just wanted to confess, I, I was feeling that way this morning. And, um, and I, at the same time, I think I cherish and I'm grateful uh, for a community like this that actually loves to be confronted by the word. Because I've been a part of communities that don't like that. <laughs> Um, and, but I've really cherished this community that's willing to engage with the word on that level. So um, take some time. The text is with you. It's going to take like five seconds. Um, it, it's verses 31 to 35 in chapter 13. Read it twice, if you will, and then uh, I, I, I might have a little question for you to engage with. Go ahead. Okay, finish up your uh, final thoughts. Let me take a moment and just uh, pray for us uh, before I jump in for the morning. Lord, we, those things uh, that, that were shared, maybe some pockets of the room were a little bit more shy or quiet. Some pockets of the room, pockets of the room got really deep, really vulnerable, really quick. God, anything that was brought to the light, Lord, would you, uh, would we trust you? with these things, these little pieces of discouragement, hardship, and suffering that we walk in, God, would you lead us to trust you with them? And those things would you hold in our mind this morning because I just feel like you want to speak to each of those things. These things that are difficult, we, often, uh, we can often hide from you pretend like everything is good, wonderful. We don't want to entertain some of the stuff that's a struggle. And so this morning, God, would you give us the courage to hold it before you and to ask why, to wrestle with why before you. And Lord, we love you. Open our hearts to receive whatever it is that you have for us. It's in your name. Amen. I think there's, with a text like this, I, I, I think there's like I don't know, 12 different 
directions. You, it's so strange. Like you would think a smaller text and you've, you've got to struggle to find something to receive, something to hear, something to talk about. But I, I just felt like there was a sea of things that I was wrestling with and wondering, God, what is it that you want to say to me this week and to us? And I just kept being gripped all week by those two words, press on, press on, press on, press on. And I think I was particularly taken by those two words because Jesus was experiencing resistance to pressing on, to pushing, to continuing. And it, and it came in a couple of different reasons. They, they, are, they are reasons why you don't press on. They are reasons why you quit. They are reasons why you stop. You know, he had, he had some Pharisees. And, and look, there's some people split over their motive behind coming to him and saying, look, Herod is coming after you. You have got to get out of here. You've got to quit. You've got to go somewhere else. You've got to go find somewhere else. But I actually think it's genuine concern. I actually think they're not like trying to, trying to just you know, find a reason to like get him to go somewhere and just making stuff up. I actually think they're concerned. Like you're going to get killed. And look, we disagree with you on, on a lot of things and we've had a lot of trouble with you, but you're going to get killed. You're going to get killed. And I think they have genuine concern. And I think that's actually partially why Jesus says later this little poignant comment. He's almost saying that thing about a, a, a prophet must die in Jerusalem. He's almost saying, yeah, but, but you guys are actually more dangerous to me. And, but so, so they actually have, I think, genuine concern. And I think I was wrestling this week uh, uh, with how Jesus was choosing in this moment to press on in the midst of people genuinely concerned for his well-being and saying no and pressing on. And at the same time, I think I'm curious about Jesus' decision to press on, not because he believed that the suffering would end, but that he wanted to press on toward an even greater suffering. That, that his decision to persevere wasn't because he thought, it's, it's right around the corner that I'm going to escape this. It's right around the corner that peace and, 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 and tranquility will come, but actually there's a greater suffering up ahead, and I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going. And I was wrestling with, is that the way that I press on? Is that the way that I experience perseverance? And I think there's some things in here that I wanted to wrestle with. Don't, don't leave the will of God. Don't quit. Don't throw in the towel. Don't say, screw it. Don't quit. Don't escape. Run away from the will of God. You press on, church. You press on, leader. You press on, missionary. You press on, we press on even when well-intentioned people stand in the way of our call to costly love. You see, the road to your kingdom destiny is going to be a minefield of people who really, really care about you, pushing you away from the will of God. Coworkers, family, friends who see you making costly, sacrificial decisions, who see you stepping in more and more to suffering and saying, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Don't do that. Don't make these unwise decisions. 
and even the casual wisdom of your, your, your barista, your, your people at your gym, your Uber driver, when you get into this random conversation, how are you doing? Things have been rough. And they say, well, just, you, that, you shouldn't deal with those people who treat you that way or whatever. And within that casual wisdom, within the casual wisdom to run away from anything difficult, anything hard, anything, anything that causes you suffering, to, to insulate your life from it, Inside that casual wisdom is this whisper of the enemy, leave this place and go somewhere else. Things will get hard. This is only going to be suffering for you. Leave this place and go somewhere else. And sometimes those people really love you. Sometimes those people are friends and parents who, even people who are believers and people who are surrendered to Jesus and people who even live costly lives themselves, they still don't want to see you suffer. Sometimes it's genuine love. But often a sacrificial missionary life is discouraged not out of genuine concern for you, but to protect a view of God that is under threat by your life. To protect a safe and comfortable God which your life has called into question. Last year, I was listening to a, a, a talk. It was a podcast by Malcolm Gladwell. Has anybody heard of Revisionist History? Anybody listen? It's amazing. Um, and he had this episode where he talked about the combination between... Uh, he used an example of basketball, a game of basketball, to talk about uh, a social threshold theory. So, in, in, in Pennsylvania in 1962, there was a guy by the name of Wilt Chamberlain who played what some people have determined the greatest basketball game of all time. Now, forgive me because I try to commit myself to not using sermon, sermon examples that make you have to be a sports fan to understand. Uh, so, but this morning I'm going to do that a little bit and I'm just going to explain everything and try to fill the gaps. It's okay. Um, so, so Wilt Chamberlain, listen, today, nowadays, in the NBA, like a good game, uh, if you disagree, just yell at me, it's fine. I would say a good game from a scoring perspective is like 20 points. 20 points in a game. No? <laughs> Derek. <laughs> I would say a great game from a scoring perspective is like 30 points. I would say a standout game, like a, like a game that will be remembered for that season, is a game where you score maybe over 40, 45 points from a scoring perspective. So listen, that's today, like that's the NBA, and the NBA's progressed. It's like, an, it's like even a more intense game today. Wilt Chamberlain, in 1962, he averaged, in the 1961-62 season, he averaged over 50 points per game. In one se over the course of a whole season, he averaged over 50 points a game. Like every single game was a standout performance in our standards. It is one of the most untouchable records of all time. And in that season, he had one game in Pennsylvania in March of 1962 where he scored 100 points. It's the only time that it had happened before in a professional basketball game, and it hasn't happened since. In a professional-level basketball game, somebody's scoring 100 points. He's seven foot one. He's like this huge person. He just dominated. I mean, he, I mean, he, would, just, he would just give it a try and then rebound it seven times until he made it. Like, nobody could do anything. But... but Will Chamberlain had this uh, uh, piece of his game that was weak. He had a weakness. He was only a 40% free throw shooter. Uh, so, so when you get fouled, you get you, about 15 feet from the basket, there's this line, and you get two free shots, free throws. And uh, a good basketball player to be at least like maybe a 75% free throw shooter. He was a 40% free throw shooter. He was terrible at free throws. 
And so what, what other teams would start doing is this, you know, Shaquille O'Neal was a terrible free throw shooter too, terrible. And he looked awful. It was the ugliest thing you ever watched on television, him like trying to make a free throw. And, and what other teams would do is they would implement this strategy called hack-a-shack. Has anybody heard of this? So when, whenever Shaquille O'Neal was on the floor and he'd just be dominating a game, basically what they would do is as soon as you'd inbound the ball, somebody would, even if he was on the opposite side of the court, opposite side of the court from where the ball is, somebody would just go over and hug him. And it's a foul. And they would tell the ref, they were like, as soon as this ball comes in, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to foul Shaq. Can you watch? Because you're not supposed to be watching like, a, like the opposite side of the court. And they'd be just over there and they'd just hug him. It's a very gentle hug. It's a foul. And then he's got to go to the line and he's missing all his free throws. So they would do that over and over again until that team has to be like, we have to take him out. So they would have to take out Shaquille O'Neal and then they're a worse team. This is the strategy called Hack-A-Shack. And, uh, you know, th- there's been other players that's happened to lately. DeAndre Jordan has that happen to him all the time because he's terrible at free throws. Well, they would do this to Wilt Chamberlain. He was terrible at free throws. They would just foul him, foul him. He couldn't make his free throws. That's the only thing that teams could do. So in the 1961-62 season, right before the season, he changed his form, the way that he shot free throws, from overhand, you know, uh, hand in the cookie jar, one of these, to underhand. Just one of these. (laughs) One of these right here. One of these. And for the 1961-62 season, he shot all of his free throws right here. Right here. And he raised that season-long free throw percentage to almost 70% for that season. And listen, people don't understand. His best season, like on a scoring, over 50 points per game, he played that whole season shooting underhand free throws. And that game, that 100-point game that he played, he made 28 out of 32 free throw attempts. It's actually still to this day the most free throws a player has made in a single game. 28 free throws. That game doesn't happen if he's not shooting like this. (laughs) That season doesn't happen if he's not shooting like this. There's one other professional basketball player who shot free throws like that. His name was Rick Barry. Rick Barry, (laughs) somebody's very excited about Rick Barry. (laughs) Rick Barry shot free throws like that his whole career. And he, he is statistically and by opinion the best free throw shooter ever in the NBA, in the history of the NBA. On, an, on, on average, LeBron James, anybody heard of that name? Anybody heard of LeBron James? LeBron James, on average, will miss about 150 free throws over the course of a season. Mark Barry, on average, over his career, missed about 10 free throws per season. 10, shooting like, <laughs> shooting like one of these. The whole time, the whole time. Will Chamberlain plays his best season ever, shooting underhand free throws, has his best game ever shooting underhanded three free throws. Neither one of those would be possible without him shooting underhanded free throws. And the next season, he went back to shooting overhand. And for the rest of his career, he went back to shooting overhand. And for the rest of his career, he was a terrible free throw shooter. Why? Why, 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 why? Why know and believe and even have experience with something being good and right and excellent and still choose not to do it? Why? And that's why there's a social, social scientist named, uh, uh, I think his name is Garenvold or something. I should probably find that. Granovetter, Granovetter. I was very close. Sociologist called Mark Granovetter. He came up with social threshold theory. Here's social threshold theory. Most people at the time and still today believe that 
under social pressure, when you have like a status quo, a social norm, a social rule, what happens is that you're actually pressured to change what you believe internally based on those social norms. But Granovetter disagreed. He actually, his theory was that you still believe the same thing. Mob mentality doesn't change your inner beliefs. Mob mentality has the power to change your behavior even when you don't think that behavior is right. Even when you're holding on to that inner belief and you, you're committed to it being true, social pressure and social theory and social norms can change the way that you choose to behave to actually be, not di to be divergent from what you believe to be true. And they would, they would actually apply this to Wilt Chamberlain. Because the NBA has this thing, this social norm, this cultural norm, this status quo about shooting the basketball like this. Everybody does it. It's been the story for a long time. And what happens is it's not just a social norm about a posture. It's a social norm that it was created by and upheld by a shallow view of masculinity. Because what did we start labeling this shot? The granny shot. Th that shot looks weak. That shot looks feminine. That shot looks uh, unbelievable. What are you doing? And so there's this, this, this whole social norm around basketball to actually play with what is known to be physiologically and with data a worse shot because you're afraid of the stigma of being less masculine in the game. And, and Wilt Chamberlain had a lower threshold than Rick Barry, who actually persevered that onslaught of social pressure for an entire career. And people, and, and, and what, what Granovetter would say is that everybody has different social thresholds. Some people have lower th social thresholds, and they'll, they'll abandon in practice what they believe internally fairly quickly. Some people have medium. Some people have really high social thresholds, and they, and they don't care. They don't care at all what you think. They're going to do what they think and what they believe internally. You see, Jesus is, will lead you. Listen, this is not a question. Jesus will lead you into a life that will embrace suffering. Your suffering, your pain, your suffering, and the suffering of others that you're taking upon yourself. You're carrying with them. He will lead you to press on through that suffering, your own and others. And that life, those decisions, that way of existing will call into a question a very powerful and transcendent social rule, social status quo. A rule that tells us that comfort is preferable to pain, that security is preferable to uncertainty, that control is preferable to the unknown, that independence is preferable to weakness. And all of those rules, all of them, they create and they protect a God who is made in our own image. They uphold, create, and protect an understanding that, that God wants in the end what we want, that God wants for us in the end what it is that I want for myself. And every time that status quo is called into question by your life, by your choices, suddenly that, that view of God and every person around you that's been bought into and lived into is, is under threat. And good, well-meaning, genuine people are going to persuade you and come against you every decision that you make that's costly, sacrificial, that leads you into suffering. And I think actually some people really feel genuinely like, like they care about you, but subconsciously they feel insecure. 
about the life that you live. When you follow Jesus to the places he will take you, to discomfort, to danger, to risk, to the unknown, to a life dripping with suffering for your, for your own and others, you don't just diverge from the status quo, you actually confront the God behind that status quo. And you will immediately face pressure, immediately. Will you press on? Will you press on in the midst of that social pressure? Will you depend on God for a high threshold, a high threshold, and lean on Him? Will you press on today? Will you press on tomorrow? Will you press on the next day? Will you press on with Him? Will you press on in that life Jesus has for you? And will you press on even when the end is not the relief of that suffering, but more of it? We often use this terminology of pressing on and perseverance and commitment when the end goal is no more suffering, no more hardship, but comfort, success, safety, security, independence, those things that we've been wired to love. But, but press on through the pain because wholeness is on the other side. Press on through the struggle because you've got to get to that promised land. But Jesus is saying, I need to press on today. I need to press on tomorrow. I need to press on the next day because there's a bigger suffering. There's a greater suffering that I have coming, that I must endure, that I'm called to. We try to escape it, but Jesus walks toward it. You see, I just think, I'll, I'll speak for me. I won't speak collectively, I, I think I have an underdeveloped theology of suffering. And I would say that, that culturally, by and large, I, I think uh, Western culture has a struggle with the theology of suffering and has a lot to learn from a global church that has a lot more experience and love and a high theology for suffering. We try to escape it, but Jesus walks toward it. When we're, when we're in it, we wonder where God is or if we've made a mistake, but Jesus follows the will of God perfectly into it, and he finds intimacy with God in it. Last week, I had a, a conversation with a really good friend who uh, some time ago, he, uh, he, had a, uh, he and his wife were divorced, uh, but it was against his will. Uh, uh, and he really, he really wanted to do the hard work in, in, in their marriage. He wanted, and he knows, he's aware of, of, th- of a lot of things that he's done wrong, and he's like willing to do the work. He's, he's wanting to confess. He's wanting to repent. He's wanting to work toward healing and restoration, and she just didn't want to. And, uh, you know, his hands. And so um, they got a divorce, and ever since then, he has felt called to the work of waiting, waiting for her waiting for her to have a change of heart, waiting for her to want to, to you know, re-engage, waiting for her to want to do that work with him. And he called me last week. Well, he texted me really, really late, and he just said, hey, um, tomorrow, do you have any time? I'm in a bad spot. I need to talk. And so I cleared a little time in my schedule. I said, let's just get coffee. And we got together, and we sat down, and he just went right into it, and he, and he told me that he was, like, really starting to struggle because he just found out the night before that she had gotten engaged to another guy. And he really felt this whole time very called to the work of waiting. Uh, uh, very, and he really believed that there was, there was healing coming, restoration coming. 
and he gets this news that she's getting engaged, and then he, he sits down with me, and, and he's just kind of like, and he's, he's, I think he's very uh, uh, wise, because when he talks to me, he's not looking for answers. He's, he's just wanting to see what I think about how he's wrestling with it. He, he's wanting me to just be a feedback loop. I mean, it's counseling 101. You don't Biblical Counseling 101, just really quick. You don't give answers to people that Jesus is supposed to answer. You just help people wrestle with their questions. Now, you can give an answer that if, if Jesus wants you to deliver the answer, but you better be sure. You better be sure. If you're going to say, thus saith the Lord, here's the deal, you better be sure. Uh, and, you know, so we're just sitting down, and, and, I, and he's just, he's, he's not asking me to answer his questions. He's just more asking, do you think God would do this? Like, is, am I, is this a possibility in line with God's character and what we know about him? Am I thinking about this right? And, and some of his initial questions were like, have I just heard God wrong this whole time? Uh, because I felt like, I was called to do this, to, to wait for her, and now this isn't happening. I mean, I've chosen, like, not to think about dating, not to think about, like, try, trying to get over. I've been, like, really trying to wait. Uh, and, you know, we talked through that a little. And then he says, he says, man, I don't know, I don't know why this would happen because it's so painful. It's so painful. I don't think I should, I don't think I can keep waiting because it's so painful in this season. And then he even started to say, even, even if I were to wait, even if, I, even, even if he is still asking me to wait, I don't know if I have the strength, the capacity to keep going, to wait. And in that conversation, I mean, it's just kind of like, so are you asking, are you asking if God sometimes calls us to something that's extremely painful? You bet. You bet. Are you asking that God sometimes calls us to a work that is a long-standing suffering and you don't even know if, the, if a, a good end will come? You bet. He, it, is in, it, is, it is totally in the realm of God to do that. Are you asking that sometimes God, God might, is it possible, is it possible for God call, to call us to do a thing that feels like is outside of our strength and capacity to endure? You bet. Yes, yes. Now, are you called? You got to answer that. <laughs> I can't answer that, but are you asking, is, is this possible? Is it possible for God to want something like this for you? You bet, yes, yes. And you need to wrestle with God to figure out, press on, press on, press on through this suffering, in the midst of this suffering. Even press on, if you, you got to reconcile in your own head and mind. Even if the promise isn't there for the restoration of your marriage in the end, but you still feel called to wait, you still got to do it. Are you going to press on? Are you going to press on? So many lives in the New Testament serve as, as like an apologetic for the expectation in the life with Jesus of suffering. Peter, James, Paul, Barnabas consistently imprisoned over and over again. 
Stephen was stoned to death by the Pharisees. James was beheaded. John was exiled. Peter was crucified. Paul said in a letter to the Corinthians, he said, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews whipping. Three times I I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger from the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. He's not just talking about like physical suffering. He's even talking about kind of the mental, psychological suffering of things like insomnia. Uh, I've gone nights without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I've gone not knowing when something, I've had the stress of not knowing when something will be provided for me. I've been cold and naked. Beside everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. That kind of, that, that, that pressing anxiety of concern for the churches and his leadership. Who, who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? So physical suffering, emotional suffering, uh, mental suffering, psychological suffering, uh, and even the ongoing suffering as a leader of having, still having to wrestle internally against the temptations that, that he struggled with. So much for the health and wealth, y'all. Where's, where'd that go? Hezekiah 37, where's that prosperity? I don't know where it's at. I do not know where it's at. These people suffered not because they stepped outside of the will of God, but because they submitted to it. Not because they made a mistake, but because they heard from the Lord. And they suffered not as a momentary pass-through on the way to something else, but as a way of life. So you press on. You press on, church. You press on, missionary. You press on, leader. You press on today. You press on tomorrow. You press on the next day because He is with you. And He's doing something in you. He's doing something in the world through you. And that suffering is never wasted. Somehow these New Testament leaders discovered more grace, discovered more of Jesus, discovered more intimacy with Him, and some this, this intimacy and dependence on Him was worth all of that suffering. That somehow this suffering, is that, that, that suffering with Him, suffering and having Him is better than a world of comfort and safety without Him. That He is sufficient for all that we could ever ask, think, imagine, or want in this world. He is sufficient. He is enough. And we find him so consistently, so often in the place of suffering. A worship team would come up. I I just want to read this last little verse that I've been wrestling with this week and give us kind of an opportunity to respond. This is Romans 5 from Paul. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we also glory in our sufferings. We glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope and hope does not put us to shame 
because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This con- I, I just see this connection between suffering and the build up all the way to hope and that hope not being put to, put to shame because we've had the love of God poured into us and the connection between these two sections. In the first section, Jesus references a motivation of obedience to his calling. He says, I must press on because I am called, because I, I, I've got to get to Jerusalem, because I'm a prophet, and prophets don't die outside Jerusalem. I've got to go finish this work. I'm held by the will of God. I'm called to this. I have to go. But in the second section, he, he, he hints at this deeper motivation. He exposes a deeper motivation, not just of obedience to a calling, but of redemptive love that resides in him. I must press on. I must press on because Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you together. How I have longed to gather you under my wings. And listen, it is never God's hope. It is never his highest hope for you to live into that life that he has for you solely as a matter of obedience to just step into suffering because you know it's where he has for you, what he has for you right now. It's know the place he's leading you to, you to right now, and so you just obey. You just step in voluntarily. You say, I can embrace that because I'm with you, God. But he always longs for you to ultimately feel the way that he feels about you and about those in the world around you. He longs for you to follow him not through voluntary obedience, but an involuntary outflow of his redemptive love for the world. And when, that's, that's when, it's, when, when you're overflowing with that redemptive reservoir of love from him in your heart for the world around you, you don't even actually consider the suffering that you're stepping into day after day. Somehow it doesn't even cross your mind as difficult. When I was in, in Illinois, before we, we moved here, we had this season where myself and, at the time, my, my girlfriend, uh, Jamie, who's now my wife, and a community of others, we, we really felt the Lord press upon us that we needed, he was asking us to be family with the poor in our city. That was it. There was no, like, go do this thing or go do, it, it was just we felt like we were supposed to be family with the poor. And the way that we tried to do that was, was taking dinner to the streets uh, in the city that we were in and just trying to have dinner, and this open dinner on the streets, just hearing people's stories, uh, uh, sharing life with them, and doing that every single week. And over time, over the course of about nine months, we started to become family with the poor. And we started to, to, to experience real life and sharing and dependence and love uh, with this community that, that we were a part of. And eventually, the, the need, we started responding to the needs of the family. And one of those needs, uh, we were doing dinner once a week on Tuesday nights. And there was only one option for consistent breakfast, lunch, and dinner for people who were, who were homeless. And that place got shut down because of health code violations. And they were shut down for about three or four months. But when they first got shut down, we didn't know about it. It wasn't like advertised or anything. We just went to our dinner on Tuesday night, and everybody was starving. And we were like, what's going on? You've never ate this much Little Caesars pizza. You know, <laughs> like everybody loved that. We love bringing it. And they're like, what's happening? And 
And uh, one of the guys just told us Sunday night, two days prior, uh, the, the place got shut down. They didn't have anything to eat. And so we were, we were, call, we were doing college ministry. We were, uh, you know, we were still in the university world. We were seniors. Most of us were seniors. So we were doing Bible studies on campus and large group on Thursday night and doing like worship gatherings and outreaches on campus. And in the midst of that, we decided we have to start a daily dinner for, these, for, for our family, for the fam. And we just, within 24 hours, we found this kitchen right in the middle of town that, that this community center, this Catholic community center gave us their kitchen and said, you can use it every day, it's fine. And we just started putting on a dinner every single day for these people. And, I mean, we were, the time, we were like losing, like, it was just a huge time drain. Our bank accounts were just dropping fast, just tanking. We were college students, we didn't even have jobs. We were like calling our parents, can you... Can you Venmo me? I don't think Venmo existed at the time, but can you like send me some money? And, and we were just draining money. I mean, I was bombing quizzes and tests at school. Didn't have any time to study, but we just didn't care. It was like, this is fine. And, and we didn't mind. It was cool. And over time, about two months into doing that, I started to dread 4.30 every day. I just started to dread 4.30 get out of class at four o'clock. I'm walking across campus to get back to the apartment. I'm trying to make that walk last because at 4.30, we got to get in the kitchen. We got to start making dinners. We got to start coordinating volunteers. We got to sit down, have dinner, eat with people. We got to talk. We got to do like afterwards. Sometimes afterwards, we do a little Bible study. It'd be a super late night. Couldn't get anything done. I just started to dread 4.30 every day, but I still did it. I still did it. Still Still went through Still went through the, the difficulty, the hardship, the tanking grades, the no money, all that kind of stuff, because I felt like we're called to do this. We have to do this. And, and I decided in March, my second semester, that I was going to propose to Jamie. And uh, I, I organized this um, proposal story. I, I organized this scavenger hunt all over the town of, like, all of our places that we, we loved. And I'd, and I'd have stuff hidden in each place and then little, like, hints to go to the next place. And uh, I'd make her, and I basically made her do, like, some of it was romantic, and then some of it was her do really, really, like, embarrassing things in public places and people videotaping it. It was for my own enjoyment. <laughs> so, um, and she, I kind of designed this whole thing during the day, and then I came to the soup kitchen uh, to, to the dinner, and, and I, I pulled one of the guys that we had a long relationship with for, like, a year. His name was Chris. And I pulled him aside and I said, dude, I've got this huge thing to design tonight to propose. I, I haven't told anybody. Nobody knows. I'm going to propose to Jamie. And he's like, what? <laughs> You're going to propose to Jamie? This is amazing. I said, nobody knows. You can't tell anybody. Don't go tell anybody. Are you good with secrets? I should have asked that first. Are you good with secrets? <laughs> he, said, he said, I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm so, I, can't believe, I can't believe this is happening. I love you guys so much. This is amazing. And I, and I gave him the first clue. And I said, you have to... Later on, you need to give this to her, and it's going to set off the chain reaction. Can you do this for me? Come on, Chris, can you do this for me? And he just, like, Chris was, like, so non-emotional, you couldn't get the guy. He was, like, such a, like, like tough. He's, like, hardened. You know, he'd been homeless for so many years. And he didn't, like, bawl, cry. He just got wet in the eyes. I just saw him. And then he just pulled me in for a hug, and he just held me. I think it was because he didn't want me to see <laughs> And he just started hugging me, and he just said, man, I am so honored to do this for you. I'm so honored. 
I love you guys so much. I'm going to I'm going to follow through. I can do this. I can do this. <laughs> he was like, I'm going to do this. And I don't know what happened to me, but just I just felt like Oh yeah, this is this is what we this is it. Like I was I thought we were for a while here I forgot. I thought we were just feeding some people. And I forgot that God actually called me to be a part of the gift of a family. Not where we're just feeding people random meals, but where, but, but where we're somehow a part of restoring to them the dignity that has been robbed from them over time. And to, to restore an identity, to restore relationships, to restore their, their purpose, to, for them to, to, to start to become a family again with other people, and for God to be able to display to them His love and concern for them somehow through this family. Why was this hard again? Why did I start to think this was so difficult again? I, 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 will, I, will, I will commit to whatever this work has. Just this moment with this guy, I was just like, who, who have I been for two months? Who have I been? This isn't hard. This is worth it. Because in him, in his eyes, I could see the voice, the face of the Lord. I was hungry and you clothed me. I had nowhere to go and you fed me. And you will find me in these people. You will find me in this family. But I'd forgotten. Something happened to me that I'd forgotten. See, when the suffering feels hard, it's often a matter of the heart. And I just want you to remember that. When you, when you start to really pay attention to your suffering, you can't stop thinking about your suffering. I wonder if you feel for yourself and for the people around you the way God feels. I wonder if you still weep, oh Tampa, oh Tampa, how I have longed for you to be gathered under the wings of Christ Jesus. Oh Ebor, oh Eber, how I have longed for you to be gathered under the wings of Christ Jesus. Is that your heart? When that little voice in you starts coming up, that little voice that says, quit this calling, quit this thing that you're doing, quit this dream, quit, the, quit this childishness and go get a real job, uh, you know, go, go build your, for yourself a real like adult life, a responsible life, you go tell that fox, I must press on. I must press on. And when that little voice says to quit investing in your neighborhood, because everybody moves anyways, and everybody's still gonna, there's still gonna be crime, people are still gonna have needs, and you can't do anything about it. This is futile what you do. And everything's transient. Once you get, once you make two steps with a family, they're gonna move somewhere else. You quit this neighborhood ministry. You tell that fox, I will press on today and tomorrow and the day after. And when you're weary of the fight against addiction and every single day you wake up and you still long just for, just for a drip of beer or every, every single night you go, to, you go to sleep and you're just thinking about getting high again and you, and you think, I should just quit this. Sobriety is futile. Why do this to myself? You tell that fox, I will press on. I will press on today. I will press on tomorrow. I will press on the next day. And when you live in intentional community and then in the middle of the night you get up to go get a glass of water and the, the, the dishes are so full you can't even get under that sink and you say, I want to leave these stupid people. <laughs> intentional community's dumb. I want to live by myself. 
you tell that fox, listen, you tell that fox, I will press on today, tomorrow, and the next day because I love these people. We're a family, and somehow we are embodying the kingdom of God in ourselves and in this city, this neighborhood that we love. When you share the gospel on campus and you're just met with more and more philosophical questions and more and more questions about the validity of the passing on of Scripture from ancient times to now and how could it be true, and you just think, this is dumb. I should just go somewhere else. I should, I should give up on this campus because it's so, it's so liberal and people aren't even open to the gospel anymore. You tell that fox, I will press on today, tomorrow, and the next day. We press on because the will of God compels us. We pe- we, we, the will of God holds us. We press on because that redemptive, furious love of God fills us. And we press on because He pressed on first, you understand. We only press on because He didn't quit. We press on because He pressed on for us. And as we come to the table this morning, we remember that this is how we know what love is that Christ died for us. That there is no version of love for other people that does not require the work of suffering. That's how we know what love is. And so this morning we remember the God who pressed on, who faced discouragement and who faced the certainty of suffering and death and yet He still pressed on. He still persevered. He still walked And it wasn't just out of obedience, it was out of love. And we press in to the heart of that man. We're desperate for the heart of that man. The night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And when you eat it, you eat it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, poured it out, said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sin. And when you drink it, you drink it in remembrance of me. This morning, as you come to the table, you come remembering a call to suffering, a call to costly love. And you bring with you your experiences of suffering, And you don't try to leave them behind, you don't try to run away from them, you don't try to escape them, but you bring them and you say thank, somehow, somehow God, you come to the table, to the elements, and you say thank you God for the gift of these sufferings which I now glory in. And you ask for his heart for the people in your life. When you're ready, the elements given for you.